Dear Lord, our hearts are filled with thankfulness. We're grateful to be here together. We know that our lives are just chock full of drama. We have so many things going on, so many things to address, um, problems to, to overcome, um, family, friends, jobs, uh, all kinds of things. But Lord, we pray that you would help us today to, um, to focus on your holy scriptures, particularly in the service to follow, of course, when, when we're sitting under the preaching, but even during this Sunday school time that, um, that we would think carefully about your word and that it would permeate our minds and our lives and that we might uh, produce godly spiritual fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Hebrew word used to describe the Hebrew canon, to knock, correct. All right, Sean, since you went to the effort of raising, raising your hand, what are the three divisions? Tanakh stands for TNK. That uh, probably doesn't help you. Yeah, but... I know there's like, I don't think it's on the right track, but there's like three exilic no, no, no. Uh, you're, you're getting ahead. You're getting ahead of it. But a little higher. A little higher. A little higher. There we go. The law of the prophets and writings. Thank you. See, thank you. Shelly. Shakelly. Okay. Wayne, uh, what are our two categories of prophets? Oh, wow, former and latter, very nice. I just saw something yesterday. It, it said, this is my step ladder. I never knew my real ladder. You set that up. You, you forced me into that. Okay. Um, all right, Dennis. The two different categories of writings. See, you always get the prophets, but now it's time that you graduate to... The writings. No. There we go. Pre-exilic, post-exilic, as far as the writings. And just another reminder, when you're looking at, uh, you, maybe you saved that, that handout I gave on the very first class that lists all the books and everything. The breaks are right in the middle of the number. Like, they're exactly the same amount um, for both former and latter and for pre-exilic and post-exilic. So it breaks down quite nicely. Hebrew literature does that for us quite a bit, so it's it's pretty good. Okay, Julian, who are the three main characters in Samuel? Uh, uh, Saul, David, and Samuel. Good. Samuel, Saul, David. Very good. Um, What are the three notable divisions in the book of Kings? kind of goes in three parts, things. Mm, yes, it, well, it ends in exile. Go ahead. Golden age, which, which is associated with whom? Uh, Solomon. In Kings, it, so we transition out of Samuel and we move to Solomon. So the golden age of Solomon anyway. Right, then we have the divided kingdom or the torn kingdom. So it goes from golden to torn or divided and ends in exile. So that's our whole kings, boom. And if you think about it, you know, just name association, you think, when you generally think about kings in the Old Testament, you know, you go, bad things happen (laughs) as soon as you involve all these kings. And so you can go, okay, well, it started pretty good. 
and ended up getting, it got divided and then it spiraled even worse and they all ended up exiled uh, in the last days there. Um, okay, now we're moving along, so we're getting to more recent stuff that we haven't repeated quite as frequently. Um, the latter prophets were also known as what? What was the other term? Do you remember that one? Yep, I heard it. Writing. The, the writing prophets. So the latter, L-A-T-T-E-R, prophets are also known as the writing prophets. And one of the reasons that they were known as the writing prophets, first of all, they wrote a lot of stuff. But the reason behind why they wrote a lot of stuff is that it was, we read verses that showed this will serve. God was telling them to write this stuff down because it's going to serve as a witness against them. Remember the example I gave is at work, you know, you get told, hey, you know, stop being late, stop being late. And then the first time your boss actually says, stop being late, I'm going to need you to sign this form. You realize things just got a lot more serious because now documentation's in fault. And so God essentially is doing that same thing and he's like, write this down. This is going to serve as a witness against my people. Okay, this is what a little addition I, I am classifying as a vague bonus question. So, uh, a VBQ, vague bonus question. What do the terms former and latter not refer to? Correct. I had time here. I had chronolo chronology over there. That, that is both correct. So, what is useful about those terms, then former and latter, if we're not talking really about time? If we're not talking about chronology. Sean. No. <laughs> Thank you for your contribution. <laughs> Uh, how, how, how is it helpful? What, why did they call it former and latter then? Uh, no, no, not that. So uh, if you'll recall, the one example I gave was like the transparency thing, the multi-layer. And so what you have is the former is laying the groundwork for what the latter do. It, but it's not chronologically, it's more of a literary thing that's demonstrating, okay, there's overlap in time, but when you lay it out in, a, in the Hebrew canon, the reason you put the former ones first, even though they happen chronologically a lot of times at the same times as the latter ones, you put the former ones first because all that narrative is laying the groundwork for what the latter are going to are simultaneously in time proclaiming and are writing down as a witness against them. So the former concept is really just building the foundation for what the latter are also then proclaiming. Uh, do you have the, I've got people with hands up here. I was just gonna say, one's the warning, the other is now. There we go. So, Oh boy. Oh well. Um, can we think of that in some ways then as kind of like general and specific as, as far as the latter ones are concerned, like speaking from the latter So your question is, does it go from general to specific? I'm sure there are elements that that's the case um, because both sets of prophets in a way do both, but they're pretty, they're in pretty distinct categories. Um, the, the, or as Rob Roy was just putting it as far as, as warning and, and judgment, the narrative portions are, are, 
It's the way I, you know, I put it before was it, just like the latter prophets are the writing prophets, the former prophets are the doing. You see all this action taking place. And really with the latter prophets, you don't see nearly as much action, um, people dying, wars being waged and everything. It's much more just proclamation of this is what's coming. But, um, okay. Um, all right, last week, the two overarching themes of Isaiah, and I mentioned perhaps of all latter prophets. What are those two overarching themes? I even did the, you're going to get this in the quiz next week. Does anyone remember? Glenda? There we go. Desolation and restoration, or if you like it, desolation and consolation. But yes, desolation and restoration, those are themes. And in fact, so what we saw in Isaiah that whole symmetrical thing is the bookends where we saw right at the very beginning of Jeremiah was both um, desolation and restoration. And then again, at the very end of Isaiah, we saw proclamations of desolation and restoration, and they, they kind of overlap in that sense. Okay, so today we are looking at the book of Jeremiah. The Jeremiah itself means that God, you know, God is exalted, God is high, God is raised up. That is what the name means. Uh, Jeremiah is the author and is known as the weeping prophet. Um, I thought it was pretty good. Uh, a thing that I was reading was uh, saying that the reason, though, that we think of him as the weeping prophet isn't just the fact that he's proclaiming these declarations of curses and and emotes a lot, like shows lots of emotion, it's because, remember, he is reflecting God's attitude toward his people. You have a weeping prophet because you have a weeping God, in a sense. So um, he's, he's reflecting um, God's attitude towards his people. And again, I continue to put these dates up here, not because I think that you're going to memorize the dates, but if you're using this uh, on your handout, you know, with these this divided kingdom business, then it gives you a chance to see that overlap that takes place over which kings and which time is going on. So um, let's read, first of all, the call of Jeremiah, and I believe Michelle's got those verses, the very first five verses of Jeremiah. The word of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, the, of the priest of who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of Yahweh came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. And it came in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of jo Josiah, king of Judah, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month, now the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the innermost parts, I knew you. And before you came out from the womb, I set you apart. I have given you as a prophet to the nations. Okay, so God is calling Jeremiah, and in fact, he had it planned from before he was born. And so you'll notice in the call itself, and it lines up with these, uh, with these kings that we have down here. So explicitly there, Michelle read for us, it names King Josiah, it names Jehoiakim, it names the very last king of Judah, Zedekiah, 
And even though those verses basically say, yeah, it's just through Zedekiah, um, the narrative uh, throughout the entirety of Jeremiah actually continues into the exile itself. So this gives you a good sense of the timing of what Jeremiah is dealing with. He already has the history of all of these former kings and all the shenanigans and all the, you know, widespread sin and, and everything that had already taken place by the time that uh, Jeremiah is on the scene. So kind of historically then you have uh, Nineveh. I'm sure you're familiar with that. That is the capital of Assyria. So Nineveh fell to Nebuchadnezzar. So again, referring, remember, the first kingdom to go down of the divided kingdom was Israel, the northern kingdom, and they were captured by Assyria. So by the time you get down here, where Jeremiah is involved with these final kings of the southern kingdom, what you have going on is the capital of Assyria, so the, uh, that, had, that had taken um, the northern kingdom into exile, is now conquered by Babylon. So it was Assyria, but Babylon, you know, there's always a bigger dog, and in comes Babylon, and they take over um, the capital of Nineveh in 612 B.C., and then Babylon begins to take on Egypt, and Jeremiah prophesied that the same power that overtook Assyria, which was, of course, Babylon, would also conquer Egypt and then eventually Judah itself. Of course, it happened. Babylon established itself as, uh, quote, the new imperial sovereign in the ancient world, close quote. They gained uh, victory over Egypt in 605 B.C. and then defeated Judah and carried them into exile in 586 B.C. And so you kind of see that on that handout. Now, Jeremiah himself, even though this exile took place, Jeremiah was not deported with the exile because... He told that last king, Zedekiah of uh, Judah, he told him, again, Nebuchadnezzar is going to conquer. Babylon is coming in. Judgment's coming. Babylon is coming in. You're going to be carried into exile. And uh, that he really, what he ought to do is just go ahead and surrender. And Zedekiah didn't take the news very well and put Jeremiah in prison. But then, of course, it actually happened. And it pleased Nebuchadnezzar, who is the one, the king of Babylon now, that has taken over, and he knew about what Jeremiah had said, and actually he treated him well, and he allowed Jeremiah to stay in Judah and did not include him as part of the exile. God's command was that the people of Judah that were not in exile, that were not taken away, should remain in Judah. However, of course, these folks that were there get scared and want to go to Egypt, which is still under Babylonian control at this point, but they want to go to Egypt. Jeremiah is trying to tell them, no, we shouldn't go to Egypt. So they bind him up and they basically kidnap him. They're his own people and take him off to Egypt and where we, we don't know 100%, but we have, we assume then he actually died in Egypt, not in Judah uh, against his will. So, and that's all actually, uh, contained there in, uh, in Jeremiah. Okay, so another interesting thing, you know, sometimes you, you know these events happen, but you forget what book, but associated with Jeremiah is the fact that he wrote the book twice, and the second time that he wrote it, he actually included a little more information. So uh, Jamie uh, hit all of those verses out of 
uh, chapter 36 for me. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah until today. It will be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Nehariah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him. Okay, so you've read uh, the two different parts there. One is God telling Jeremiah, you're going to write all these things down, hopefully so that they repent. And then the second set of verses were 23 to 24, where now enter in Baruch, who is his amanuensis, it's his scribe, but you know, he's taking his dictation. And then finally, verse 32. Okay. Did I so hit? I bypassed oh, 23. You oh, no, sorry. I, I mistook that. Go ahead, 23 and 24. As Jehuda read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into a fire in the pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all of these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. Okay. I mean, it's just... You find yourself just shaking your head, right? They're reading the word of God out loud and then systematically tearing it, throwing it into a fire, and nobody has any fear whatsoever. This is not going to end well. Go ahead. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Noriah, who wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to them. Okay, so I just wanted to point out there, besides the fact that um, Jeremiah uh, wrote it again, that there's that additional phrase of, and many similar words. So there are debates out there, controversies about different things, and it's helpful to just know, so I'm just planting that little seed in there for you, that, um, that the second version actually had, likely had more than the first version. So as far as our themes, we're right back to essentially what Glenda said earlier, our desolation and restoration, but we see it play out in two different ways. So uh, Jeremiah's mission is actually summarized in Jeremiah 1, verses 9 and 10. Jamie? No. Jane. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set to you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Okay, so what you have here is you have four terms within it kind of listing what he's going to do. You have four terms of judgment and two terms of blessing. You have that he's going to pluck up, he's going to break down, he's going to destroy, and he's going to overthrow. But then he's going to build and he's going to plant. And that ends up culminating 
in what's referred to as uh, that messianic, the righteous branch is the term that's used. So uh, 20, chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, Jasmine. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Okay, so that whole idea of righteous branch, I know I've mentioned it, I think, in two different classes. That, um, that example of, like at 9-11, the, the survivor tree, that, that tree that appears to have been completely burned down, but they, it, it actually was still alive, and they brought it back to life. And so we see that same thing being described in Isaiah and in Jeremiah. It's the stump of Jesse that, uh, that is cut down, but yet there is a branch that comes from that, a righteous branch. And, of course, that's referring to the Messiah that arises out of what appears to be uh, complete desolation. The other thing, and then this is, I think, a really powerful um, analogy uh, that we see. And here's a language, I'm going to show you a little language thing that I think will help remember, is that what Jeremiah does is he acts as a prosecutor and um, he brings, now my, my history with dealing with some law, is, is, you know, prosecutors don't bring lawsuits, but they bring criminal charges, which probably is more appropriate in, in the way that we do things. What, what God is doing here, he's bringing criminal charges, but the God's word actually says that he's bringing a lawsuit against the people. Ever, ever heard that? God is bringing a lawsuit against his own people. So Jeremiah 2, verse 9 Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children, I will contend. Okay, so what has been translated contend there in, uh, in, your, in that version is actually lawsuit. The direct um, translation would be he's bringing a lawsuit against them. So this is um, something that's taking place in a court of law. And then again in Jeremiah 25, verses 30 to 31. You therefore shall prophesy against them all these words and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high and from his holy habitation utter his voice. He will roar mightily against his fold and shout like those who tread grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. The clamor will resound to the ends of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against the nations. He is entering into a judgment with all flesh, the wicked he will put to the sword, declares the Lord. So the Hebrew word is the same in both of those verses that Glenda just read and Wayne just read, where it was, uh, where it was translated as contend in Glenda's verse and indictment in Wayne's verse. In both of those, it is that sense of bringing a lawsuit. God is bringing a case to court against his people. Uh, Sean, can you hand him the microphone? He's got it. Real quick question. Yes. Um, is this on the basis of the contract that was established through the law? Bingo. Bingo. So what he is prosecuting is the Mosaic Covenant. So the very thing that Pastor Nick is just about to launch into in Exodus in his sermon series 
is this Mosaic covenant. And so, of course, we are in this clash right now. We're, we're past that chronologically. And so what's taking place is Jeremiah is coming in and saying that covenant that he made with you, you have violated terribly. And now I'm bringing a charge against you. So you can see again, um, kind of like having writing prophets, it's like this is very formal. God is going on the record to say, this is what I have against you. Now, that said, this is what's fascinating, is that even though he is bringing this, uh, you know, if you want to call it a plea agreement in the criminal sense, or if you want to call it a settlement in a, uh, you know, in like a civil sense, but he offers them in bringing this suit, in bringing this indictment, he offers them a plea. That's the first part of it. He actually gives them a chance. We already know, and that's, you know, this is the way things work even in court to this very day. Charges are brought. It's about to be formalized, but it hasn't actually gone to trial, and a sentence has not been um, declared and executed at this point. And then what takes place is the prosecutor and the defense attorney will come together and say, hey, you know, let's talk about it a little bit. Well, in this case, of course, God is the, the judge. And through Jeremiah, his prosecutor, he is having them meet with the people and say, okay, I'm going to offer you a settlement. I'm going to offer you a plea agreement. And... Uh, before before we even uh, before we even read the verses, does anybody want to guess what the plea agreement is going to be? What's that? There you go. Thank you, Jane. If you replant, so there actually is a little bit of irony here, a little word play as far as a plea agreement. If you plea, you know that if you plead plead to God and you repent and you turn. Right? So we're going to read the terms of this plea agreement in Jeremiah 3, verses 11 and 12. I think that's me. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Okay, so you'll notice in those verses, it's already being declared that they're faithless. So it's not like God saying, hey, make sure you don't do something. He has already said they're faithless. But he's declaring that he is a merciful God. And he's saying, look, it hasn't happened yet. The hammer hasn't dropped. Repent, and I will avert my anger. So the plea is thrown out there. And then um, this, this is stated many times over, but we're going to read one more um, reference, which is chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. If you return, O Israel, declares Yahweh, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glorify they glory okay so you have 
you know, there was, there's a substantial body of um, detail that is contained in what Pastor Nick's going to preach through about the terms of the Mosaic Covenant and that they entered into it. They entered into it willingly. Of course, it was a gracious covenant and God was doing all this for them. Here, they have over and over again in abs- the most horrific ways possible to the point of all just rampant sexual sins, sacrificing children. I mean, horrible stuff. And yet, God is saying, it's, I, I haven't executed the judgment yet. So, if you repent, if you return, then there is still blessing to be had. I mean, my goodness, could he, could he be more gracious? And um, then what we get is the fact that they declined the plea offer. They declined the settlement. They said, no thanks. We believe we're going to continue doing exactly what we want to do in worshiping other idols and in breaking and violating your law. And at that point, then, what we get is a declaration of a covenant curse. And we see that take place in Jeremiah 15, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to me, through Moshe, through Moses and Samuel stood before, though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. And when they ask you, where shall we go? You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, those who are for pestilence to pestilence, and those who are for the sword to the sword, those who are for famine to famine, and those who are for captivity to captivity. Okay. I mean... When you think about, it's bad enough when someone says, you know, I'm going to crush you, I'm going to destroy you. In this case, (laughs) I don't know, to me there's insult on top of it that says, yeah, hey, however it is that you're going to be destroyed and desolated, you know, famine. If If you're part of the famine, people, yeah, you're being destroyed by famine. Pestilence, sure, you're a pestilence. Sword. You're under. You're going to die by the sword. Whatever that is, you're all going to die, you know. Um, and and there's like a just complete dismissal. They dismissed his plea, his offer of a settlement, and as a result, then um, they're going to get the uh, the business end of violating that. Another thing I didn't I didn't write it up here, but that I think is fascinating. I wanted to bring this up because. Um, Pastor Nick spent so much time talking about it in somewhat in Genesis, but definitely when he was covering all of the uh, curses in all of the plagues um, in Egypt. And does anyone remember just that generally this, this falls squarely in my category of vague bonus question here. Um, the, do you remember the, the, the phrase, the, the word that he would use to describe what God was doing in those plagues. Would you? Uh, it was a polemic, absolutely. And um, in that polemic, that's not the word I'm, I'm looking for, but he was doing something in particular. Yes, Kalen. Yes, decreation. Decreation. So we have a God, and our world, the great American way, is, of course, to make God the, the big cosmic Santa Claus and all he does is positive and create and he's in your corner and all that but our God is so powerful that he is not only the God that creates it's his creation which means he also 
not only can, but will, under, in his providence, decreate. He will disassemble the very things that he assembled. And that's what uh, Pastor Nick went through in each of those plagues and demonstrating, I will decreate the very things systematically and as a polemic, like they're, they're all very intentional about how it is they're going to decreate. And I have a quote on that, but go ahead, Jamie. These are the uh, potter um, roles that are discussed in Jeremiah. Yes, yes, the potter and the clay. God gets to do with each vessel as he determines to do. But um, not, only can, can, not only does he just have the, uh, not only does he have the authority to do those things, but God, th- this sense of how, how he will, the beauty of creation, and he will then take it and just reverse it and just unwind it all. Uh, here's a quote from Peter Lee. Uh, quote, Judah should not interpret their pending demise so they're about to, you know, go in exile. They're pending demise as the victory and supremacy of Marduk, the high god of Babylon, over against Yahweh, the god of Judah. Let me pause there. So what he's saying is that it would be the wrong thing for them to look at it and go, oh, wow, the Babylonian god is stronger. Continuing the quote, rather, their agony is a direct result of their covenantal infidelity, And the Lord is exercising his sovereign authority over all the world to utilize a pagan nation like Babylon and thus their lesser deity to fulfill his divine will and purpose. He is that powerful. Close quote. So so we we have again this idea of creation, decreation, where God says, okay, part of this idea of desolation, this idea of judgment, is that he is pulling all the Legos back apart, which is a very painful operation. Go ahead, BJ. I was just going to say, I think we even see that the lawsuit is a little more specific in the type of lawsuit in that, I mean, this is a divorce court. Um, So over, you use the word infidelity, Jeremiah repeatedly says that they whore over other gods in the high places. Um, And then obviously, the consequences of this is that they get put out of the marriage um, here. So it's interesting that not only is it court, but it's actually, this is God going through the process that he designed to divorce his bride. Right. And, and, and then to get more graphic, of course, is to look at what you just described in the context of Hosea saying, okay, go, go marry a prostitute. You know, it's just the, that idea of, of he is completely faithful and his people are could not be less faithful and so it it gets taken to court and god divorces his people legitimately okay um we're going to look at the handout again uh, this side of it and i have that peter lee put that graphic together that you see on the top half and i'm not going to read it all to you but it is of course interesting Uh, the you have this layout this design of the book so one of the things that is possible is that we, we know that Baruch was his amanuensis. He's the, he's the guy that was uh, writing down the dictation of Jeremiah. And it's possible that he also had a hand, Baruch also had a hand in the organization. So the words, first of all, they're all God's words no matter what. But... Uh, it's God's words through the author Jeremiah being dictated to Baruch, but there's some uh, suspicion that, that Baruch had a hand in 
the actual layout of the book and, and how the order it kind of comes in. But it is fascinating that you have a kind of an introductory portion in Jeremiah 1, and then you can see the chapters, how they kind of parallel but are the opposite. You know, true prophetic, prophetic word, uh, chapters 2 through 25, and then false prophetic word, and then it goes over true blessing, false blessing, and then uh, it ends with the cosmic rule of the Lord who brings blessing and curse to the surrounding nations. So, because there are all these oracles that are proclaimed. So again, as you're making your way through the book of Jeremiah, it could even be helpful to have something just as kind of generalized setting there. And if you're reading Jeremiah and you're like, wait, what chapter am I in? Instead of just being completely consumed by, oh my goodness, we have another oracle against another nation, you can see... Uh, the pattern here and how it kind of plays out and that it's very intentional, the design of these oracles against these different nations. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to point out is that um, uh, David Dorsey here puts together for us a chiasm. So a chiasm, remember, it's that Hebrew literary technique where it's, you know, you can almost, it's symmetrical. You can basically kind of fold it. Um, in fact... One thing I, I would be grateful for is if I was a better artist, but I don't think that's ever going to change. But um, we've talked before how Hebrew literature, you know, it does something seed form, and then it, and then it does it again, but adds more, and it does it again, adds more. Well, you figure, this, by the way, this is just completely me. This is a little Pete thing here, so, so just bear with me. So you've got this whole idea of that. Well, you add in the chiasm, Thing where it also turns into kind of a, a parallel. And so really what you have here is a cinnamon roll. And so, you know, you put a little, I wish I could draw some frosting on there. But anyway, so you've got Hebrew literature adding another layer to their cinnamon roll here every time. It's still the same cinnamon roll. Um, but just like in a chiasm, just like a cinnamon roll, you know, is, is not precisely the same on both sides but it looks very similar, and where do you find the best part? Right in the middle, right? That's, that's our cinnamon roll. So that's my, that's my cinnamon roll analogy of a, of a chiasm. And then, uh, so that's exactly what you have here in this design. So you'll notice A, oracles against Judah, but you drop down to the bottom, A prime, oracles against the nations. And so uh, you can see how it goes back and forth, and all of these things are listed by chapters in a way that is symmetrical, but the main point is the center of the cinnamon roll, chiastic cinnamon roll here, which is the message of future hope. So right in the middle of all of this are chapters 30 to 33, and then we have what is perhaps one of the most famous chapters, one of the chapters, one of the passages filled with the most hope for all of us is in Jeremiah 31, and um, Rob Roy is going to read Jeremiah 31, verse uh, 31 to 34. We did? All right. Feels a little. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, I couldn't help but make an observation roll, which I, I really like the cinnamon roll, but false Christianity and the cults would be then compared to a donut because there's nothing in the middle. 
there's no hope. There's just a bunch of nothing in the middle. Nothing to offer. Yes, they do not have anything to offer. Thank you, Pete. That came from an officer of the law, so it makes sense. All right, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I covenant with you, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That is good news. In the midst of uh, Jeremiah, who is prosecuting a case and um, that's proclaiming desolation, and yet they're here in the center of this, then there is that, uh, that hope, that best kind of hope, the new covenant. Um, now, this is... Uh, just fascinating how these things work as well. I know that Jeremiah is part of the latter prophet, so he's a writing prophet, and it isn't tied quite as closely to the narrative, but do you remember at the end of, um, I think it was the end of Kings, do you remember the little spark of hope that we got after all that exile business at the, at the end of Kings? What, what happened? What were the final verses? Jane? Yes, Zedekiah was, yes, and he, he was released from prison and he was actually allowed to eat at the king's table and that ended the book, right? Well, here we have all of this prosecuting business taking place in Jeremiah and then the very final verses of Jeremiah, Kelly, as uh, 52 verses 31 to 32, where are you? In the 37th year of the exile of Joachim, king of Judah, in the year evil Merodach, the king came of Babylon, he released Joachim, king of Judah, and freed him from prison on the 25th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king of Babylon gave Jehoiakim a regular allowance as long as he lived till the day of his death. So again, we have in 52 is, the, is a description of the fall of Jerusalem. So after Babylon had done all this, um, it's still at the very end of Jeremiah. We have hope. We have that branch, that righteous branch that is going to sprout. So we see these themes over and over again. Repent, suffer judgment, but yet God maintains his remnant and his hope. Thank you, PJ noted. Zedekiah and Jehoiakim are the same person. There was a name change. So, all right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, uh, for this time. Thank you uh, for engaging our minds and um, help us to hide these things in our heart so that we might not sin against you. Bless the following service.
may it be honoring, glorifying, pleasing to you, and conform us more into the image of the Son. In Christ's name, amen.